I'm happy. <laughs> All right. Good morning. How good morning. Doing? Good. Welcome back from your trip. Lisa's been on a trip for the last couple of uh, days, five days. Uh-huh. She's been out in Utah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So <laughs> we're never going to talk about that. <laughs> we are going to talk a little bit about that at some point, but not today. So good morning. I'm Diva. Some nice reservations in, uh, in, in, in Utah, some beautiful nat- uh, nature reservations. In, oh, yeah. uh, Absolutely. Lovely. I drove through that state one time. It's very desolate. I never saw many humans. I know there's pockets of humans, but anyhow, let me get this started. We are with Rebecca Shaman today. This is Mind Body Business. I'm Devo. I'm Lisa Staff. And I'm excited about the conversation. I met Rebecca almost a little less than a year ago. I believe she was referred to us by a mutual friend, Candace Blair. Um, she is a shaman. She actually lived indigenously in the Amazon jungle for many years, learning the ways and the arts of of plant-based therapies and, and, and in her, to her terms, le- living, learning to live shamanically as humans were designed. And she has brought that wisdom and that esoteric concept and philosophies back to the Western world. She now does this as he has her full-time profession, teaching corporate individuals and corporate executives and businesses how to live shamanically in a Western world, taking her, what she's learned, all the lessons that, that, that she learned in the jungle, and she's adapted it to sort of a Western ideology. Is that a fair way of saying that? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. In addition to that, you do cacao ceremonies. And we're going to learn a little bit about that because we actually have done a cacao ceremony, Rebecca. Um, and, and both of us have a unique take on it. So we'd love to kind of get your insights on that. Um, and then you also do ayahuasca ceremonies, which is a, um, in a conversation I had with you, that's kind of been tabled for a little bit and you're about to kind of resur- resurrect that, right? Oh, no, I, I go every year to the Amazon, but because of COVID, unfortunately, yeah, yeah. this year I've had That's to uh, cancel it because you still can't get into Peru. Um, so, yeah, so it's uh, so this year. But I usually take people to the Amazon. I usually go to the Amazon for about three months every year um, as part of my 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 top up <laughs> from Mother Earth, my Mother Earth's top up after after nine months in the urban jungle, you need to get your batteries uh, zipped right up, you know, filled up, filled up with a bit of mother nature. So. so Lisa was asking me this morning what exactly a shaman is, and we understand it with the definition of it. But can you, in your words, explain to us what exactly that means, what you did, how you came across that process? You lived indigenously in the jungles of, of the Amazon. Can you just kind of take us back in history a little bit on that? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it's getting a bit complicated on the definition of what is a shaman and what is shamanism, because if you go with the very like traditional way of, of what shamanism is, is it's an indigenous leader within the community that people would go to in order to get healing. So they were considered doctors, really. And they had kind of like a foresight or an insight into people's illnesses and into people's problems. And so there would always be the healer in the community that was the shaman. Unfortunately, in the Western, in, well, certainly in, in Europe, all of those kind, that kind of indigenous practice was completely wiped out. So we don't have any indigenous people in, in Europe. So we've completely disconnected from our roots. And it's become very scientific, rational, logical um, perspectives and, and, and the way that we view life, a, a, life, a, a, a life perspective. And what, I'm, what we're seeing or what I've come to understand is that shamanism for me is more of a belief. And it's a belief of unity with Mother Earth. So we no longer have a, if you're, if you're following a shamanic path, you no longer have that 
belief or that understanding that we're separate and that we have a kind of a superiority on the planet, that we realize that we're one with Mother Earth, that we are connected as an, an eco um, web of life and we are part of that, that eco web. And um, we, we are as important as every other living being on this planet, uh, planet. And it's our duty to leave a planet for future generations. Actually, we are the ancestors of our future generations. And so it's having a more of an understanding of this unity consciousness, this connection to everything that we share this planet with in order to be able to um, leave a, a planet that's striving for our future generations. And rather than it just being a specific one person that is healing the community, it's everyone becoming aware of their unique purpose and place on the planet and what they can do in order to be part of this process of keeping this planet healthy. So that was a, wow. a, a mouthful wow. of amazing. There's so many nuggets. Yeah. I'm like, is it, I'm just going to write these things down. It's like, mm. can I, go a little bit deeper. So where were you before you went into the jungles? What were you doing? Obviously you're in the UK, but what exactly, who were you before you were exposed to that? So, and what was the, I guess, what was the catalyst for, for going into that time and space, learning the shaman arts and moving into Peru and living in the jungle? Where were you before and, and how did that kind of come about? When I was very young, <laughs> it was about 22 years ago. So I was just starting out on my path and I, I suppose, I was a bit of an environmentalist always, and I've always had a love for Mother Earth, and I've always questioned the idea of, of God, just because I, I could never see a God. So um, I ended up going to Machu Picchu in 1997 to work as a culture and activities manager in a hotel. And actually, I didn't really know much about shamanism or plant medicines or anything like that. I, I was going out there really to help this hotel out and to bring it back into the modern day for an American um, clientele and to create packages and, you know, kind of bring a Western uh, feel to the hotel that was pre predominantly uh, Peruvian run. And I got there and things at the hotel got, got quite difficult. And I used to go running every day. And one day I had a big argument with the general manager of the hotel and I went for a run and I ended up going on a animal track rather than on the May path. And because I was quite angry and young, I was like really just going for it. And I completely climbed up this mountain basically. And I got to this plateau and the sun was setting quite dramatically down the other side of the mountains. And in the, Amaz in the Andes, it goes very, very quickly, gets dark very, very quickly. And I suddenly realized, oh my God, I'm up here on this mountain. Obviously there are no mobile phones at that time. I didn't have any water with me. I, I, I didn't have anything with me. And I got this strong message that to go around looking for the path to get down, that there would be a path that I could follow to get down the mountain, not to go the way I came. So I started following trying to walk around the mountain, trying to find a path and no path came. But what happened was that it got slipperier and slipperier and wetter and wetter. And I realized actually that if I continued, I was gonna fall down the mountain. At the same time, I couldn't go back to where I'd started because if I took that trek back, it would be dark. And then I would, there'd be no way of getting down the mountain and I'd be up there the whole night, I'd probably freeze. So I was in between this kind of, as rock in a hard place actually and in the end I had to make the choice and I decided I was going to fall down the mountain and so I just edged as far as I could until I knew that there, there was no other way of going of doing it. it was either falling down the mountain or staying up there all night so I chose the quickest way that I thought was going to go to if I was going to die <laughs> falling down the mountain was going to be the quickest way anyway you start, you start so I started 
you started a mudslide. You didn't even know. I it. started a mudslide. Yes, yeah, so I started sliding down this mountain and um, basically put a prayer out. Was I was feeling very depressed at the time and very angry. But when you're actually faced with death, you're given the choice. You're like, I oh, actually, it's amazing what kicks in. So this kind of need to be alive. I just suddenly thought, oh my God, I'm not finished yet on the planet. Actually, there is something I need to be doing, but I have not a clue what it is, but I, I know I don't want to die yet. It was like this real moment. And um, so I put out a prayer that, you know, something would save me or I would be saved. And a tree caught me at the base of the spines, at the base of the, the, the mountain. The, there was a lot of trees and, and a tree, I literally fell in between a tree. It was like it caught me. And I was able to come down from the mountain. And that night I went into onto the balcony, into the mountains. And I said, okay, so why the hell am I here? Like what's happened? I, I could feel there had been a big explosion in my head. And obviously as I was falling down the mountain, my, I really thought I was gonna die. So my body was, I was preparing for death and you know, we're chemical beings. So whatever we're producing in our, in our brains, that's, what's, that's what we're feeling. That's the sensations, the thoughts, the ideas that we're having. And I really feel that I basically blew my brain really. And that night, a uh, shaman came to me in a vision and he basically said, I'm your teacher. I'm waiting for you. And if you believe in me enough, you'll find me. And the reason you had to get to this point to know I exist and I'm waiting for you. Wait, so um, the, sh the, the shaman came to you while you were falling, you said, or while you were that night? No, that, that night. So that night. When you're telling your story of your falling, all I can think of is that Monty Python experience where he's like teeter-tottering over the hill that you showed me. <laughs> you're thinking a hot rod. Yeah, we're just like, okay, no, you're, you're losing like- No, I'm the, not. So, the power of this. So, so that night you had a dream about this? No, and that night I went out into the mountains and I kind of said, so what the hell am I here for? What am I doing here? And a shaman came to me in a vision and it was like, I have to say it was like a veil lifted. So it wasn't an apparition and it wasn't a vision in my head. It was a proper, proper, he, he came out and he said, right, I'm waiting for you. You had to get to this point to find me. And I've got the messages, I've got the medicine for you. And I've got the reason for why you're here. Now, I didn't know anything about the Amazon, I didn't know anything about ayahuasca, I didn't, I didn't know anything. And the next day I was given a book called One River um, by Wade Davis about his teacher that went looking um, for rubber trees in the Amazon and came across a lot of ayahuasca, uh, well, tribes that drank ayahuasca. And I read it and I suddenly thought, oh my God, there's a shaman in the Amazon and ayahuasca is my medicine. I just, it was a knowing, it was a real knowing, but I really believe that by falling down the mountain, I had kind of blown that veil of separation and he had done ayahuasca that night and we had met in a, another dimensional space because I knew that I had to go and find the shaman and I knew he was waiting for me. And you know, that despite all the doubt and everyone telling me it wasn't gonna be possible and everything that transpired, I flew to the Amazon, I flew to Iquitos and I found him and I trained with him. And I believe that it was, it was, a, it was a destiny for me um, and it put me on the path. And yeah, I've just been on the path ever since. So in, I flew um, to Iquitos in 1998. So I stayed at the hotel and then in 1998, I flew to the Amazon and I ended up staying with him for three and a half months. Um, and living with him and his family. And then he sent me back to the West and told me my destiny was here actually, and not there. Do you think without that experience that night of, of doing your angry run and having that experience, do you think that, that you would have still ended up in the same place? That the veil, 
that opportunity would have come to you anyways? That's a good was question. Waiting? I I think he said to me, the reason why I was in Peru was to meet him. That that was the real reason why I was in Peru. But I had to go through the broke. I had to get broken in Machu Picchu in order to get so desperate. Because once I was so desperate that really going to the Amazon and, and staying, I was completely isolated. I didn't speak Spanish. So I spoke street Spanish that I'd kind of learned like three months before I went off to Peru. So I hadn't learned Spanish properly. So I couldn't speak the language. I was taking, you know, plant medicines, not just I was many plant medicines. So I was really not in the right consciousness and, you know, living like in the jungle with a jungle family, you know, you're on edge every day of, of, of you know, anything potentially could happen that you could die, snakes and spiders and all sorts. So I really had to have been in a state of readiness to want to be out there and, and put myself in that kind of danger and, and actually go through it all the way through. And so I really, I really believe I almost had to get to that really super dark point of death in order to have survived living in the Amazon and being put together by the shaman. Um, and that's why kind of I feel like my journey is a little bit different because I, I didn't go searching for it. it. It actually came and called me to it. And so I feel for me, it has really it put me on the path. And for me, my life is before Peru and after Peru. Um, very much once I came back, that that was it. I was I, I was changed completely. And it's interesting because the plant medicine that I took with the shaman, the ayahuasca, wasn't actually uh, shakruna. So most people that are drinking ayahuasca are drinking it with the shakruna um, leaf. So um, for those of your reader, um, listeners that don't know, ayahuasca made up is a brew made up of two elements, a vine called Banisteropsis capi, which most people call ayahuasca, and a leaf. And that leaf can be a number of leaves, but it's a leaf that contains the psycho at the psychotropic element. And you mix that with the ayahuasca, what the ayahuasca does is it, it um, suppresses the MAO inhibitors in the stomach so that you can digest the, the alkaloid or whatever is being digested from that leaf. And most people mix shakruna into, with, with the ayahuasca. So, and the shakruna leaf contains the DMT. But in my part of the Amazon, we didn't have shakruna, it didn't grow. We had tuay, which grows everywhere, datura. And so the, my shaman was a master tuay shaman and tuay is scolamide, it's not DMT, it's a totally different alkaloid, but a much more dangerous alkaloid, much, much more intense and severe. And actually is well documented that people go completely mad taking tuay if they're not guided properly by a proper ayahuasca shaman, a proper tuay shaman. And it's a totally different level of, of medicine is to a and I and so I went there but I, obviously I didn't have anything to compare my ear with so for me it was it was what I just took and for the first time it wasn't until 2014 so like 16 years after I'd done ayahuasca with my shaman that I actually took DMT for the first time and oh my god it was a completely different experience and so I feel it also I think what um to does is it changes the DNA structures completely and and it completely changes not only your DNA, but also your cellular, cellular structure. I think it has a very deep, powerful experience on many different levels. But Tuway, there isn't that much study on Tuway, um, much more on obviously Chakuna and the basic, well, the, 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 the more known, known uh, plants that are mixed with ayahuasca. 
So this divine intervention that you had in your 20 somethings, it's, it's pretty fantastic to actually talk about. And, and, and we can go into the DMT if we at a, at a separate podcast, but you're 20 something, you're falling down a mountain, you have this divine intervention, if you will, to mm-hmm. seek out somebody who actively in your estimation was inviting you into his world. So prior to that, what exposure had you had to religion, whether it be Christian-based religion or Western-based religion, what was your experience around that? And, and if, you, if you can for a second, when you received this message from the shaman, do you say shaman or shaman? Shaman? Shaman, shaman, may say tomorrow. <laughs> when you received this message from the shaman, were, were you fully aware of what it was or were you like, what the fuck, who's, who's, who is this talking to me? Or how, how do you even sort that out in your head at 20-something? Well, look, it's very interesting because I'm very logical. I'm a super logical person. So that's why I didn't really get the God thing because I can't see God. I, I, you know, I have to see it to really believe it. And I don't really take what people say unless I got proof of it. So I'm actually an interesting... Is that now or then at 20-something, your belief was the same relatively? Yeah, I have to have more scientific knowledge. So basically, I flunked out of school at 18 I, I, I had a, a bit of a m- mental breakdown actually and I didn't do very well and I, I failed my exams and so I, I escaped to India <laughs> and I ended up living in India for a year and a half and I got very into Hinduism and meditation and I actually just lived in ashrams and, and people go to India for many different things but in the nine, early 1990s, a lot of people were going there for their spiritual awakening. And so I basically went for a spiritual awakening rather than the party in Goa, which was a lot of people were going there for as well. But so I ended up becoming like, you know, wearing all white and meditating three hours a day and being vegan. And I, I totally took on that whole spiritual journey and came back and ended up uh, doing a study of religions degree um, majoring in Hinduism. So I, I became very connected to Eastern philosophies. And then I started a Buddhism practice for Pasna and got very into Buddhism and just, you know, the whole kind of Eastern philosophies, the Eastern traditions, I, I be- completely delved myself into it, obviously doing a university degree as well. And then I, when I finished my university degree, I ended up um, running a new age shop an esoteric shop in London for nine months. And so I started to dabble in tarot and crystals and um, kind of Western spirituality, but indigenous shamanism wasn't filtering in at that point. So there was a few people talking about it. Uh, Lynn Andrews was one of them. And uh, there was a few others, but it wasn't, it, it hadn't, it wasn't like it is now. And so there wasn't that much information and it was very much around kind of Native American shamanism and that kind of thing. So we didn't, not really, not much was coming out of South America. And then I got this opportunity to go to Peru. And so I went to Peru. And then when the shaman came to me in a vision, I have to say it was a vision. It was, it was like the, the veil lifted and I saw him. So without a doubt, I knew he was waiting for me and that he was calling me. And there's no easy way to explain that. Um, I have a lot of people who email me saying, oh, you know, I, I've had a vision of a shame and I'm going to go and find them. But I, a, a vision and an apparition of uh, uh, there's a fine line. And apparition is something I think that you can kind of... Um, 
you can kind of see in your mind's eye and it's kind of this desire that you want to bring. But for me, this vision was an ap absolute reality. He, he came to me and he, he, I could see him, touch him, smell him. It was real. I was watching a show, or I'm sorry, listening to a podcast on feminine and masculine powers and how the, how the earth is, is has two different power sources. There's a feminine power source and a masculine power source. In, in your sense of this, and I'm going to get off topic for a second, but in your sense of what you did to this experience, you keep referencing as a hymn, but in the experience of shamanism in of itself, isn't it more of a feminine power or am I going off on a tangent that's not even completely accurate? The hymn is the shaman, Don Correct. Juanito, who's okay. my, for me, the plant medicine is feminine. Ayahuasca for me is the female, my, my grandmother, I call her. And I see her as the grandmother medicine. Um, and the, she's old, very wise, quite brutal. Um, you know, not, not, not kind of nurturing, but very kind of will show you what you need to see in a way that, you know, is going to wake you up very, very quickly. So she is a, a very powerful medicine. But like I said, it was Tawei, not uh, DMT that I was taking with scolamide. Um, uh, so the visions that I got were very purgative. I, I vomited ridiculous amounts of every, it was every journey was a huge amount of purging really and getting rid of a lot of, I, I would say ancestral darkness and, you know, ancestral conditionings that weren't, that, that disconnect us from mother earth. And I feel that that was the healing that the Tawei gave me was actually reconnecting me on all levels back to mother earth on, on, in, in, from a cellular level onwards. And I, I think we, this disconnect has really connected, really disconnected us on so, so many, on so many levels within ourselves. We don't realize how many levels we have or how many layers we have within us. Um, and I feel that ayahuasca really did, goes deep, deep, deep into that unconscious and kind of reconnects us back into um, mother earth. When you're going through these purges, it's metaphorical, but it's literal. Are you aware of this transformation as you're going through these purges of the changes that are, or the awareness that's going on as you're going through it? Or is that something that comes after the fact? Oh my God, that's something that comes completely after the fact. So, well, the thing is you have to remember, I was 25, so I had no prior reference. I had no reading about it. I was deep in the Amazon. I had no one to talk to, no Westerner, no Westerners came. I was completely isolated in this tiny village, 14 hours away from Iquitos, living like the indigenous have lived for hundreds, thousands of years. And so I wasn't, there was no integration. There was no one to talk to. So, and I was you know, drinking ayahuasca like three times a week. So it was kind of like, I kind of see it now more as an initiation. It was the initiation with the shaman and the plant medicines and the real apprenticeship started when I got back to London and I had to integrate it all. And it's taken years and years and years to see the shifts and changes of my own psyche and my own sense of self. And it's been an ongoing journey and it's been something that I think is, is a lifelong journey. And that's what I was told that I started so young because it's a lifelong journey and it, nature takes her time. And I think people are always looking for that fast, quick fix. And I think ayahuasca can ha can give you that if you're really ready for that next step and you go there. But I wasn't, it wasn't, I wasn't there because I had been looking for something. I, I had been there to kind of find out who I was. And I think that takes a, a longer process then wanting to deal in a, you know, deal with an addiction specifically or something like that. This was like, who the hell am I and why am I here? And that comes from my beliefs, conditionings, 
ancestral parenting and all of that. So it's taken years for all of that to kind of just, you know, dis disintegrate and, and leave me with the very core of who I am. But those are the questions that everybody wants to know. Like you're hitting those topics that were like, who am I? Why am I here? What's my purpose? All of that. When you said, I love how you said that his purpose was to put you together. Do you feel like you're still being put together or was that like, is it an ongoing process for you? So I, I felt like I got everything shattered. Like actually falling down the mountain was the last bit of shattering. Actually, it was kind of like, I wanted to, I wanted to escape the hotel. I, I, I was kind of like, I, I came up against all my darkness in the hotel. Everything that I felt about myself being a failure, not being good enough, all of that stuff all came up. And so it was kind of like, I couldn't escape from myself anymore. So actually falling down the mountain was kind of like, this could be the escape that I'm looking for, like death basically finally can get escape myself. But also I realized obviously at that moment of falling down the mountain that death wasn't the way out. That actually I just needed to find out who I was and start loving myself. And I think it was that need to really forgive myself, love myself and actually just accept myself was that as I was falling down the mountain, I think it was that plea that came out and it was that plea that hit the shaman and um, in that level of consciousness. And that that's when he came and said, okay, I'm here, I'm here waiting for you. I still, I also believe I went out, it was all part of that process, but if I hadn't have fallen down the mountain at that degree, I'm not sure whether I would have found him and would have, I would have been able to have stayed there either because it was just such an intense experience that, but the, the other side of not staying through it was worse than going through it, if you know what I mean. Because I'd already gone to the very edge, which was death. And I realized that I had to, I had to heal it. I had, just had to heal myself. It's so visual. And then just the wording that you use, like falling down the mountain. I think we've all like at some point come to a, a, a part in our life that we have fallen down the mountain and, and, and need that resurrection of what our purpose is and need to be put back together in, in the correct way. It's, it's so eloquent the way you, you know, and it's, it, it's just so good. Your story. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because I do, I, I, I do agree with you. I, I mean, with the putting back together, I think a teacher does put you back together, but I think in the end I had to put myself back together and I, and I think we do give our power away a lot to the shaman or the guru or the teacher. We're all kind of looking for that shaman teacher guru. But actually the reality of it is I put myself back together. He gave me the medicine and the container, but it wasn't until I came back to England and I had to say, okay, who am I within a Western context? You know, can I be me? What I learned in the Amazon, can I live that in London without compromise, in the center of London without compromise. And so I had to almost put my, he gave me the tools, but in the end I had to put myself back together because at every moment I had the choice to let go of that path and maybe walk an easier, more simpler path, or, or whether I was gonna stay on this difficult path with the seed that the shaman had planted inside of me and let it grow. And that, that, was a, that was a personal choice that I made and other people might not have made the choice as strongly as I did, but I made a massive commitment that I would always be, uh, that Don Juanito and the plant medicines were my teachers and I wouldn't go and look for anything. I wouldn't search anymore. So my search ended with Don Juanito and, and I made that choice. So that's the key to so many things, though, in our life, isn't it? Like what you're saying, like we either like, uh, you know, I have a, a, a 
church background where, you know, you went and you were filled with, oh, you're filled with the spirit. And then you leave and you get in, you walk out those doors into the real world, or you take that, that educational course, you, you, uh, you know, Tony Robbins, whatever that is. And then you walk out the door and you're faced with, well, am I going to implement this in my life? What am I going to do with this? It's, it's you doing the work. Yes. I, and I think that we, it is us, we have to do the work. It's an internal journey that we're all taking and the shaman, the guru, the teacher can't do that work for us. We, we have to make that work. And that's why I was really grateful to the shaman because actually we had a big argument just before I left, like literally on the day that I left. And so he basically shut the door on me and I wasn't welcome back into the Amazon. And so I had to find my way in the West on my own in the darkness. And you've got to remember it was 1998 there was no internet was only just started. There was no, nothing really on ayahuasca. There was a couple of professors that I found online that were doing some work on it, but no, I, I was really isolated. And so I had to work it out on my own. I had to go through my own process and I had to build myself up with, in my own time, with my own experience. And I think for me, that's also was quite powerful because, you know, when you Google something, it does change the way you see things. And, and so I didn't have that luxury of Google but at the same time I think that's a blessing and a burden because I had to come to my own conclusions and my own understanding it takes longer but they're mine and I own them and so I know who I am on a much deeper level than and so it's a blessing and a burden I think having gone there being completely isolated coming back having no one to talk to my community had kind I come from a Jewish community so they had no idea what was going on with me and I had to internalize it all and work it out from the inside out there's a blessing and a burden in that. So you talked a little bit about, I mean, that's kind of the point of all of this, isn't it? You talked a little bit about that fast, quick fix that we're always looking for. We're always looking for the next teacher, the next inspirator, the next, and in our case, we manage social media accounts and help small businesses scale their brand. And we come across a lot of clients who are like, I just need to get here. I need to have this number of followers. I need to have, and we're always pulling them back in it's like let's take a deep breath and look at the big picture here the point of social media is is to be part of the process to be involved in the conversation to you to not expect success overnight and so going back taking those shamanic principles that you learned it's kind of part of the process of terms of you've taken 20 years to get where you are today right and and you mm-hmm. and you're still an evolving creature who knows mm-hmm. where the next 20 years might bring for you but why are we so caught up? Is it because of the culture we live in? Or is, is there some other reason why we're always so caught in that next big instant gratification moment that we have to have, that, 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 that dopamine rush that we get from something? Why is that? Because, why have we lost our because way? Because we had a conversation. You asked me about something and how are you feeling? And I said, I'm content. And you were kind of like, what's that mean? I'm like, it's, it's hard to be content. It's hard to say like, I'm happy where I am, or this is enough. I think we're always, always scheming like this isn't good enough. What do I do? What's the next step? I need bigger, better, all of those things. Yeah. So why is that? Is it because of the culture we live in? Like it's a whole, it goes back to the whole chicken or the egg, right? Which came first? Is it the culture that we live in or was it a slow, steady drip of the conveniences of culture that we have in this Western world that brought us to this space and time where it's like, we always expect to have whatever we want right then and now as opposed to getting and diving into the process and enjoying that part of of everything. Tell us the answer. (laughs) I think it's human nature. I think if you look in Buddhism, um, Buddha taught Vipassana in order to help people, you know, calm down their minds and, 
you know, stop, you know, he talked a lot about the, there's an addiction to wanting more and the bigger house and the bigger car. And even Buddha was, I mean, obviously not talking in that material levels, but he talked a lot about materialism and suffering. And, and that was like 2000 years ago. And, and I think it's, it's part of our human nature to, you know, want more and more and more. I think it's, it's, it's something within our, in our psyche. Unfortunately, we've created a system that kind of feeds the addiction so now you can call up Amazon on a Saturday and get it on a Sunday. You've got instant emails. So if someone doesn't email you back after two days, you're kind of freaking out that, um, you know, why haven't they called, you, that there's something wrong. We, 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 we've created an environment now that is pretty instantaneous, which has, is a problem because it doesn't connect with the whole way nature works, which is much slower. Nature takes her time. I mean, if you look at a flower opening, you need time-lapse photography. You, you know, it takes a while for a flower to open or for a flower to grow. And like with everything, you know, things take some time to, to really get rooted and, and, and to grow strong. And what we, we, we're so disconnected to nature, we're so disconnected to those natural laws of nature that um, we've created systems that are much, much faster, but I think it has a, a massive toll on our, our mental health, on our, our, our mental health and well-being, and, and our physical health and well-being, because we now ex there's an expectation to it. So when we don't have that expectation fulfilled, then it creates un uneasiness or unrest or something's not right within us. When actually we're just not being able to sit back and being comfortable in the uncomfortableness. And we talk about that a lot in the ayahuasca ceremonies. Is that we've we're so uncomfortable that we become numb to the fact of how uncomfortable we come and we think we're comfortable in the uncomfortableness and what we need to start melting some of this numbness so that we actually realize we know actually we're really uncomfortable. Most of us are just really uncomfortable. And once we start owning that we're really uncomfortable, we can start looking at what we needing to do to become and feel more comfortable, more calmer, more peaceful. And a lot of that is slowing everything down, not speeding it up. So letting go of needing to have the next teacher or the next big thing or the bit this and actually coming back down into being feeling very calm with what, exactly where you are now which is really what mindfulness is teaching meditation is teaching and there's no coincidence that meditation and mindfulness have exploded in the last 10 years as the internet's risen and email and all the communications that mindfulness meditation yoga is all really blown up as well at the same time because you need to balance and and people need to have that slowing down with that speeding up otherwise you burn out so so that i, I, I want to get brilliant. to that for a second that's almost a double-edged sword in of itself so with the access and the availability of information the whole idea around yoga mindfulness meditation in of itself in the western world with a lot of people has taken on an expectation based aspect whereas people and i and I, I encounter this on a daily basis even with myself even with my daughter i'm trying to teach her how to be more mindful and meditate every day and she's suffering at it because she thinks that there always has to be a result so after she finishes her 15 minute meditation she should feel this way or after she lays and 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 listens to binaural beats and her headphones she's supposed to wake up and feel that way and a lot of people that I speak to, you know, and I don't really talk about it a lot because I find a lot of people who aren't aware of meditation or that sort of concept, they don't understand it because they think there's going to be a result on the other side of it. And um, I was listening to Sa Sadhguru and he was talking about how 
Western yoga has taken on that ideology of it's all about being stretchy and wearing, looking really fit and looking really beautiful. And that's not even what yoga. <laughs> we don't. We don't. Yeah. At all. <laughs> and that's not even what yoga is. So, so how do you manage? I'm going somewhere with this. How do you manage that double-edged sword where it's great that we have information available to us, but we have to toe that really fine line between using the information to to harness it in a more powerful way as opposed to just expecting a result from it and being enlightened because we meditated this morning. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course. You're seeing that a lot with the ayahuasca, you know, people saying, oh, I need to make a decision. I'll just do an ayahuasca ceremony or, you know, I need to do this. So I'm going to do some San Pedro or whatever it is, whatever that next thing is that you, and, and, and I, I, I'm not sure. I think that, um, is human nature, is human behavior. But I think it's that expectation is, is what will make people feel um, that they're not doing it right because they're expecting something in return. And, and it's the re-education really that, you know, these, these are lifelong journeys and lifelong paths. I mean, to, to really become an expert of meditation, you have to be doing it for years and years and years. You know, asking someone to sit down for 15 minutes and they think they're going to empty their mind and they're going to become yogis is, is what I call lost in translation. And, and I, I feel quite, you know, in a unique position because I studied Hinduism at university and Buddhism. I lived in India for a year and a half and I see a lot of the philosophies that came over to the West because we didn't have a spirituality. So we had to adopt a spirituality from somewhere else. And most of our spirituality, certainly in the UK, has been adopted from India. And that is because it was a colonized country of ours. So we took a lot from India and we, we adopted a lot of their spiritual practices because we didn't have any. But a lot of it has been lost in translation so much of it's been lost in translation and what we've done i suppose what i how i did it is that we've adopted a lot of that translation or a lot of that spiritual mysticism and and kind of formed it into a western understanding and fitted it into a western um way of of, of us to understand it and utilize it and that is why i feel yoga has lost a lot of its roots um because again it's become a commoditization of a, 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 a process that was to keep you in balance. So yoga is a practice of breath, you know, stillness of the mind and also focusing on the asanas of the body so that you are really focusing in on your body. So you're becoming in alignment with yourself. Yeah. And what we've seen in the West is that, oh yeah, you know, if I do yoga every day for five days then I'm gonna get really good toned abs and I'm gonna look like a, what I call the yoga bunnies. And so we kind of, um, we, what we've done is that we've, we, we've taken something that's very powerful and turned it into a commodity to sell. And I see that with also a lot with our ayahuasca. There's a, you know, if you're, if you're earning a living on something, yoga teacher, people who did yogi, yogis didn't make a living being a yoga, being a yogi. That's who they were and what, that's what they, you know, that, that's who they were being. Now we've commoditized it. So ayahuasca, now you go, you're a shaman, people pay you money you offer the medicine. So you're not going to, it's a, it's a totally different thing. The moment you put a payment on something, then you're less, um, 
it becomes business. And so the values are different and the principles are different and, and things change around that. Well, let's talk about that for a second, because in the essence of time, there's one key thing I really wanted to have a conversation with you about. And before I do that, so Lisa and I do yoga together and we have for the better half of a couple of years. And it's not until recently, and this is true and when I've had this conversation with you, it's not until recently that I actually started to really understand the purpose of yoga. I used to think it was to be stretchy and to be, you know, do some sort of an exercise. But it wasn't until the last six months or so, for whatever reason, where it's finally started to click, that the process of yoga, staying with the moves, holding the space, focusing on your breath, being in that in tune with your body and, and understanding how it feels as you move in between and you transition in between different poses and whatnot, that that's really more the purpose of it for me is being able to kind of get into that space and understand what's going on. And that's a direct metaphor for what you're actually trying to teach now to the Western world through the arts of shamanism that you picked up on. And I'm going somewhere with this. How do you take those, those ideologies that you've learned and bring them back to a Western world which is so success-based. Everybody is this uber competitive environment. How do you take that slow down, that be with the process, that feel the breath, understand the breath, transition through everything and teach that to a Western world that is nothing but instant gratification and I have to have uber success all of the time. And not having a packaged answer, like, like you walked away with some tools that you had to implement into your life in the situation that your life was in. Mm-hmm. Well, I, it's a very interesting, uh, you know, there, I don't think there is an answer to that. I think, I think the coronavirus was, has been a big um, process in that, uh, you know, the corona is being the head, so the mind, the, 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 the corona, you know, the, the crown chakra, the coronavirus. And so my feeling is, is that the coronavirus has really made people stop and relook at their lives and really having to take stock at where they're at, who they are and you know what they're where they're going and so it was almost like we were it was a I was it was like the Titanic really so it was this huge you know ship just on the trajectory and no one had to look at these questions or had to face it and the, the coronavirus really has been the iceberg that has kind of stopped the ship in its tracks and now people are having as the water rises and you know a lot of people are drowning under the economic issues and problems that it's facing people are now having to really look at who are they and how they live their lives and you know is success enough is it just going out you know because before when you just when you when you were, were living to work so you you got your paycheck once a month and that was enough to feed your family and to have some time for entertainment you didn't really have to think of the job because you were living the dream but now many of those people have lost those jobs or those jobs are you know, on the edge, and and there is no entertainment. There's no cinema. There's no dancing. There's nowhere to. So suddenly, you know, people are having to face the the reality of what was my life really about, because now once you've taken away all those diversions, you're having to face what's really going on. And I think that that is what's that. I think the coronavirus is is the first big catapulting shift into a new understanding of who we are. It's that downhill tumble you took. Mm-hmm downhill tumble it's the start of it and i it's just going to keep on the time as you know with any snowball it gets bigger and bigger so you had the coronavirus and the lockdown now we're going to start seeing the economic impact of that and we're going to start seeing how that's impacting on so many things we haven't even seen it yet it's like you know and it is a bit like studying like for me when i studied in the amazon when i was thinking if you if you 
think about it, I was taking ayahuasca or the medicine three times a week, plus other medicines. You know, there was an accumulation going on without any time for integration. It took nine years to integrate that three and a half months, nine years. It took me nine years to return back to the Amazon in 2007 and for my from the next start of step of my journey. So yeah, it was, it's been an interesting, it's, it's an interesting question. And I think coronavirus is, is this, is what's going to shift consciousness. Well, that's an interesting, can I add yeah, one more thing? Yeah. That's an interesting thing because even, even in the, in the solution that the modern world is presenting to us around the, this Corona, they're promising this vaccine that in a few short months, we'll have this vaccine. That's going to be the instant gratification. If you will. what's all, there's a lot of background. Apologies. Are you still with us? Cause you're kind of frozen, Rebecca. Hey, Rebecca, can you hear us still? What is the sound that keeps beeping? Can you hear us okay? Yeah, I can hear you now. Sorry, I think my, my internet's a little bit. Um, okay. Sorry, it slowed down a little bit, my internet. I'm not sure why. Okay, no problem. So I'm going to go back to that yeah, question. No, okay, <laughs> so so there's an interesting there's an interesting conversation around what you just said because the solution in of itself that's being presented to us is that we'll have a vaccine and I don't want to go into a corona conversation no. but there's a vaccine no. that's coming and I don't care where you where you stand on the barometer of good or bad on the vaccine the fact of the matter remains even if a vaccine does come in we expect it to be this instant solution to this pandemic if you will but nobody's really talking about what you just said which is the economic cascade the job loss, the depression, the suicide, all of those different things that are going to be the fallout from this that we haven't even really seen yet. We mm -hmm. haven't even even touched the tip of this iceberg that you talked about. So it's a really interesting metaphor for what you're teaching as opposed and exactly like what's going on right now, mm -hmm. in, my, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. I mean, what happened with the lockdown is that everyone had to slow down massively. And that's what needed to happen more or less because be, when you're when you're on a trajectory you're just on that trajectory if you're traveling a lot and just everything had to just shut down and so it's the blessing and the burden but when you're when something like this such a cataclysmic event happens the future is so unknown we, we just don't know what's going to happen we are we're writing it now the unfolding planetary story is now writing itself right now because we completely, the trajectory that we were all on is no more. So we have no idea where we're going now because governments don't even know what to do next. So really this is quite an, an, an interesting time in, in, in history as another civilization is starting to crumble or the system is starting to crumble and it was rotten anyway, it needed to crumble. And the coronavirus I do believe is, was mother earth's gift to us in the fact that it's a virus, you, you, to get to get a vaccine for one particular virus is almost impossible because yeah. by the time yeah. that vaccine comes out, that virus will have morphed a million times over. Mm -hmm. It's about us having to look at our relationship to nature because you can't stop a virus. And I was thinking about this yesterday, actually. You know, whenever there, there, there was always war, okay? We, you had a lot of like factions all over the world. You had the ELF in Spain or the ELF, uh, I can't, the, um, was the, 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 you had the Basque country people, uh, 
organization. You had the IRA in, in, in the UK. You had lots of kind of little kind of independent factions trying to create unrest. You know, there was war everywhere. And then 9-11 came and basically wiped out you know, all these little terrorist groups, and then it became the war on terror. So we have the war on terror, the war on cancer, now it's the war on coronavirus. You know, why are we creating a battle with something that we cannot see? You know, I get it if there's, uh, you know, something tangible, like we're, we're a war on Hitler, on, on a world war, but yeah. So we've got, we're having a war on cancer. Well, how are we ever gonna beat cancer? Cancer, cancer is within us, it's a, it's a tumor, of our cells that are no longer in homeostasis with where we're at and very connected to our emotional state. You know, likewise with war on terror, well, you know, you can't have a war on, on something so intangible as terror. And now we're having a war on coronavirus. And I, this mentality that we have as, as humans, that is something that we don't like, we have to have war on it. We have to attack it is I think also creating a division and this kind of separation consciousness that this virus is our enemy and we have to somehow battle it in order to get on top of it rather than recognize that the coronavirus is a part of what we've created. It's, it is there because of our, our relationship to the environment and our relationship to nature. And actually what we really need to be doing is recognizing that that needs to change as a fundamental and you can't battle something that is, 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 is the consequence of our actions. And in addition to that, but we're, we're all in this together. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> in, addition, battle it together. and in addition to that, Rebecca, so there's another piece of that, that I've, that I've been kind of conceptualizing is that the virus in of itself is, is a, is in a symbiosis with our evolution as humans. And so maybe it's a necessary evil for us to have this virus within our bodies right now, preparing us for something that we haven't even yet encountered just like the flu has prepared us all these years, hundreds of years. You, know, you follow where I'm going mm -hmm. with this? Like, are you, are you frozen? There. So, so maybe the virus, as you just touched on, it is a gift. It is a blessing. And unfortunately some people are going to lose their lives because they're not, their bodies are not able to handle it. They're already predisposed to sickness, but the virus in of itself is allowing our bodies to evolve and become a, a stronger version of ourselves perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. And if you believe in the origin of the virus, that it came from a wild animals, it's our, because our relationship with the, with the other living things is just so destructive that is creating these kinds of uh, viruses within ourselves because our relationship with the, with the living world is so, is so damaged. And, um, and yeah, it, it, it again is also like with everything, you know, it's it's um, it's attacking the most vulnerable in, in society, which is what illnesses do. They attack the most vulnerable in society, which is why you're seeing, OK, some young people might be uh, are, are getting sick on it. But the, if you look at the statistics, yeah, you know, the majority of people that are dying are over 70 or yeah. 79. Yeah. All right, don't get our show banned. Don't get our show banned. Yeah, yeah. okay. <laughs> we don't no. want to get banned yet. No, 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 no. So, I mean, so the, the, the situation is, is that if we don't start healing our relationship with the natural world, with the, the living world, then the, these, these things are going to just keep on growing. I mean, we all have, it's like we all have tuberculosis in us. We all have cancer in us. It's what triggers it that keeps it to grow because we're a biological being. We're not a solid frame like this and and i think that that's where our, our disconnect is and and science 
doesn't look at those levels it, it doesn't look at it like that it, it, you know we don't we don't we've, we've lost that connection and, and and so i think this is a very important um belief that needs to be come back i really feel that as that humans are on a on the crossroads of evolution we're either going to go through down transhumanism or unity consciousness oh, and you, transhumanism, just, you just opened up a rabbit hole there transhumanism okay well, so me, we're so we're running out of time and i'm going to okay. be i want to pull this back because yeah. There's, there's so many things I still want to ask, even just on a, a, a basic level. And you you touched on a lot of things. You touched on, you know, us numbing ourselves down. And, you know, we joke through, well, it's not really joking through Corona that, you know, there's going to be a lot of relationships that make it and a lot that don't because they're quarantined with each other and they don't have that numbness. But I think that translates as well to us personally, not just a relationship with someone, but all of a sudden we're faced with, like, I used to joke when I'd go running, like I'd have to play music because I didn't want to be alone with my thoughts. And I think a lot of people have been alone with their thoughts. Now you talk about inspiring conscious change. And I want to talk a little bit about that. I want you to kind of explain that. I was speaking to someone the other day and they, you know, a lot of this has come out now and is almost trendy, you know, like, oh, I'm taking mushrooms. And I, you know, he explained his experience and I said, well, that's fantastic. So what are you going to do next? What's the next step? What have you learned from that? And how are you going to implement that? You know, this, this fantastic, you know, clarity that you had and he goes, oh, well, nothing. <laughs> so if you can kind of explain how, how you're inspiring conscious change and how you're helping to implement that or how people can implement that, go that next step. Kind of like what your experience has been. You had those tools and then you walked away with something and made it happen. Well, yeah, I, th I think that it's a very important thing. I, I, I do feel that people aren't drinking responsibly these medicines because these medicines haven't come all the way out of the Amazon to just have, so people can have a nice little trip and a nice little vision something to made talk to about, really, really good something about to post. And, you know, and, and, and actually not make the changes. I mean, why would ayahuasca come out of the Amazon where she's been, you know, we're very well protected for thousands of years, weave herself around the world in order to wake people up, in order to recognize that this is a moment of a consciousness shift and she's there. And I think people who have taken her and haven't made those changes in their lives aren't drinking responsibly they're they're drinking for self-gratification and and for some ego trip rather than to actually realize that they're an important part of this ongoing unfolding planetary story and for me it was a very important was when i got back from the amazon because obviously the shaman had um shut the door on me so I couldn't go back to the Amazon. And I had to make a decision what I was gonna do here in the UK. And I could have um, written a book about my experiences in the Amazon and become like a, become a, a speaker on it and, and, and an author on it, or I could become a shaman. And, I, um, and so I, I didn't wanna do the book because I felt like I hadn't integrated this journey enough and I didn't want to be known I didn't want to be a celebrity and I didn't want to be known that I'd gone out and saved the shame and it's not really my thing to I'm, I'm, I have no desire to be a celebrity and I've no desire to be famous so it wasn't that didn't really didn't fit well with me at all and I felt like I'd gone through such a deep thing with the shame and I had to do something good by him like he'd, he'd offered me something much much deeper than just I'd gone out and trained with him so I thought I'd become a shaman but obviously what I'd learned in the in the Amazon I couldn't really trans translate into the west because I'd done ayahuasca I knew how to run an ayahuasca ceremony 
but without the shaman there with me and without, you know, the Amazon and without all the, the stuff that I had been taught with, I felt very uncomfortable doing it here in the UK. So I went to a healer friend of mine and I said, look, can I learn with you a modality that I could take into the West that I could kind of fit alongside my Peruvian training and turn it into something that's Western, you know, Westernized. And he turned around to me and said, look, I'm not your teacher. It's not me. Um, I can't help you. Um, there's a teacher that is coming, but it's not me. And in that moment, I realized, well, I'm at a crossroads. Do I need to find another teacher that's going to teach me a Western modality? Or am I going to sit with Don Juanito and the plant medicines and accept that that's my training, that I've had my training. And now all I have to do is see what opens up, what path I need to walk. And the easiest path would have been to have found another teacher, learned from them, got some you know, but modalities and then set up as a shaman and kind of brought it out there or started to do ayahuasca ceremonies. But my heart knew that this was a lifelong journey and that I had to commit to Don Juanito and the plant medicines and surrender to whatever the destiny was going to bring me. So I, in that moment, I chose the destiny. And it was at that moment that I was like, okay, whatever you want me to do, I'll do. I don't know where I need to go with this. And I kind of surrendered to that not knowing. And a few months later, I was told that I had to do a master's degree in development economics and go into the corporate world and bring the messages into the corporate world, which was something that I would never have thought of. My, I would never have chosen that path. Um, but that was the path that was, that, that was the mission that came to me and within a year I you know enrolled in university gone back to university did my master's and I started to realize that I was I had to learn to be it and that the master's and working in the corporate world and everything that has transpired has it wasn't a doing it was a being it was a becoming and it was a journey of becoming and a journey of recognizing that this is a lifelong journey of becoming one with nature and doing what needed to get done so most people would have expected, oh, you come back from the Amazon, you set up as a shaman, you do ayahuasca ceremonies, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, 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 and there's a very fixed kind of expectation on that. But when you let go of all of that and say, what is it needed of me? Then your journey takes on a totally different trajectory. And I think that people are always looking for the obvious and actually it's very much hidden it can be the, the path can be hidden in, in what isn't obvious and what feels most uncomfortable so a master's degree was the most probably the most uncomfortable thing I could have ever been told to do and yet it was the most empowering thing I've ever done and it is when you get on these paths it's about surrendering to the path itself and not to the expectations of what is expected onto you and that's what turns it from a doing into a being because you you start being it why I inspire conscious change, why I'm inspiring conscious change is because you can't make people change. You can't. All you can do is be the change and hopefully your being inspires them to be, to, 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 to also take on that being of it, which is, comes back to what I said at the beginning with the shamanism, that shamanism is, is, is a being, it's a belief that we're one with nature, not a doing. So just because you do ayahuasca ceremonies, just because you, you know, do, you know, sound healing or you sit in a teepee or, you know, doesn't, for me, it, it has to be much more than that. It has to be the way you live in tune with mother earth. How, what's your footprint on the planet? 
how's your relationship to all living things? Because if that's not in alignment, then it doesn't matter if you're sitting in a teepee, you know, banging a drum or, you know, playing gong. It, it's just a doing. You know, this is, yeah, we have to go much deeper. It's all about the being now. And, and, and that's the next level of consciousness because we're in, we've, we've gone beyond the doing. We, we're in a cr crucial time now. It's about us all starting to become it. And that for me is, that, is the shift in that. So, so the, the takeaway that I took from that, and we're running out of time, so I didn't mean to cut you off, but the takeaway that I, that I hear you say is it's all about the sus sustaining and the resilience of what, whatever it is that you believe that you should be doing, as opposed to just looking for a one hit wonder or an instant gratification on something. It's about finding what your superpower is and learning to become one with that process as you develop it and you nurture it and you sustain it and you practice resiliency and adaptation as you go through it. Don't just necessarily think that there's, there isn't a necessary final destination to anything. There's a bunch of really cool stop-offs along the way as you get to the wherever you ultimately become, right? And then there's no destination. There's, that's the problem. That's the point. We're all looking for the destination yeah. and there isn't one. There's the goalposts. That is, is the journey. And that's what I was told. It was like, so when I was told, when I got the message I had to do my master's degree, I was like, crazy. There's no way. I've just come out of the Amazon, taken ayahuasca. So, you know, I was having this like ne negotiation really with what I call the voice. Um, and I was like, there's no way I'm going to do a master's. And they said, well, this is a lifelong journey and you need that master's degree because you don't know where you're going to be in 20 years time. So you've, you've chosen to, to walk on this path. It's a lifelong journey. So it's going to take its time and there's no hurry. And, you know, I'm, I'm really impatient. It's one of my big things. And so I've really had to learn impatience personally because things have taken so long, but at the same time in that, in that, in that growing, I've, I've really, I've seen the blessing in that, in the fact that my relationships are very strong. I've, I've been able to really develop myself in my own unique way, in a calm way. So I, I've really kind of established who I am without any real kind of attack from the outside because everyone wants to go on onto everyone else's journey and everyone has an opinion and everyone has, you know, something to say about it. And I, I feel like because I've been quite quiet and doing my thing, I've actually had space to actually organically become myself without putting myself out there with too much expectation. Because also if we put ourselves out there with too much expectation, it, we're gonna get we're gonna get seriously bashed down as well. The the aim is to and that's the difference between the doing and the being again, is when you're in the being, there's no expectation because you're just being it. When you're in the doing, there's an expectation because you're doing something for something, usually in the West. So you're kind of expecting something to come because you're doing it. And it is really moving from that doing to the being that actually re releases a lot of that um, pressure. Um, and then you can just really start enjoying the journey because that's the key if you're not having fun if you're not enjoying the journey then something isn't in alignment with who you are and it's and I think the coronavirus that's what brought up for a lot of people I'm not actually enjoying life and all the di all the diversions that made them think that they were enjoying life have gone now people are really having to face you know am I is what is life and this question from this stems where we can come from the doing to the being because the doing is gone now we have to really start looking at the being. And I think that's the coronavirus is that first step into understanding that. And we're having to make that choice now, you know, unity consciousness or separation consciousness. And it, I feel this is the last 
cycle that we have the voice. So the witches were all kind of murdered in you know the 16th, 17th century. And I feel like this is a, a revival of the witches actually, a big revival of women empowerment, of women leadership, who are talking about this relationship with mother earth and nature and they can't burn us on the stake anymore and they can't silence our voices and we need to find the strength and the courage to actually stand up now in this time because our voices aren't getting heard the female voices aren't getting heard and it is really time for more female leadership to stand up and start talking on behalf of mother earth and unity consciousness and balancing this patriarchy that is crumbling and offering a unity consciousness of yeah. that connection. I'm going to send you, and that's, there's so many wisdom pieces that you just dropped oh, in there. Yeah. And I sent you a podcast on that yesterday. That I'd like you to listen to okay. on the power of the femininity and all that sort of stuff. So you're Rebecca Shaman. If people want to find you because we're running out of time here, it's Rebecca, R-E-B-E-K-A-H-Shaman.com. And yeah. if anybody wants to get some more information on some of the workshops that you're doing, some of the work you're doing in the Western world on around the shamanism, they can get some more information from that website, right? But there's yeah. some things we haven't touched on. We haven't touched on the power of the cacao ceremonies that I wanted to talk about that. And you've, you've, you're involved in the Hemp Alliance too. And that sounds like you're doing amazing things in that too. So what you're saying is she has to come back on for several more yeah, shows. Yeah, we can talk about any of that. I'd, yeah. love to come, I'd love to come on, actually, and talk about ayahuasca, cacao, and cannabis. Because for me, those are the three plant medicine goddesses that have been suppressed by patriarchy, really. And um, for me, ayahuasca is the grandmother, cannabis is the mother, and cacao is the maiden. So the three faces of Hecate. So the goddess has three um journeys that she goes on she goes from maiden to mother to crone and for me uh, cacao is the maiden cannabis is the mother and ayahuasca is the crone and interestingly cacao and cannabis are both really super powerful plant medicines that have both kind of been really suppressed so you've got cacao that's kind of been stuck in a confectionery box you know, hidden in Mars and Nestle and, you know, shoved with vegetable solids and all this shit. And the power of her hasn't really been really fully ignited or understood. Likewise with cannabis, the power of cannabis as our mother for this and the politicization of cannabis. And I feel it kind of represents the, the suppression of female empowerment and so for me this rise of ayahuasca cannabis and cacao is really representing the rise of the divine feminine and the the importance of a female voice in this in these discourses and narratives that has really been ignored for the last three or three hundred years well it, that's crazy to think and 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 we can have a different conversation on this as well but there have been going back several thousands of years the egyptian mummies the mummification of 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 corpses all across the planet in in multiple cultures all over the all of the planet they have found traces of those three ingredients cacao marijuana um, ayahuasca ceremonies going back thousands and thousands. I'm talking like tens of thousands of years that were buried. So we know that they have always played a critical role in the formation of humanity. And there's a lot of reasons why they were suppressed. We can have a conversation about that offline, but they all began with the development of the patriarchy and organized religion. 
and I'm just going to drop that bomb there and leave it at that. If we're going to be in a battle, it's a battle of consciousness right Absolutely. now. That's the thing. I mean, this is about unity consciousness and separation consciousness, and we're at the crossroads now. And I really, it does, you know, for you, I never knew what the path was. I was just like walking it with kind of seriously, blindly, just following the guidance from Mother Earth. And I just think it's very interesting that ayahuasca came to me in that, broken down place then cannabis came to me in 2006 so I've been working with cannabis for the last 13 years and now and then cacao came in 2013 so for my the last 22 years of my life I've been really dedicated to cannabis cacao and ayahuasca and I really feel that they are really representative of female empowerment within the plant world and also with for, to help us humans awaken to that unity consciousness and so that's my one of my roles is to bring that um understanding into a more mainstream environment so people you know can get inspired because what i've learned I, so i had a, I have a couple of friends who've committed suicide from this coronavirus that they just couldn't cope and i really tuned into the medicine and i was like what's happening and they said look without hope there's no inspiration without inspiration there's no creativity and without creativity there's no right action so hope's important to create, to spark inspiration, to spark the creativity for right action to happen. And it, to hold hope, you have to really have a vision of where we're going. And for me, the plant medicines have really helped me have that vision. And so it's keeping the hope alive. Otherwise people are just going to get into a deep depression. Hope's a really important part of this. And with hope, you need inspiration. And so that's for me, inspiring consciousness changes, offering hope for a brighter future that we're in control of because we have the choice, but it's that shift in consciousness of understanding that choice that's going to enable that hope to inspire the creativity. So then inspire the right action that's gonna be needing, which really is to clean this planet for future generations. It's that simple. The only duty that humans have on this planet is to clean, have this planet healthy for our future generations. Yeah. You know, every ancestor before us have done that. We've just left it in the biggest mess ever. Yeah. You know, three, three generations down the line, they're not even gonna have clean water to drink. I mean, we're in terrible trouble. So it is our duty for every parent on this planet to be leaving a, a planet. And it's understand, once you understand that, then the hope comes quickly because you know what you need to do. Yeah. And I, I think that's like, we're just guardians and stewards of this planet. So it's really bringing that conscious awareness back into the discourse, back into the narrative, back, back into the storytelling. All right, so let's close this down. You yeah. have, you have, it'll never close down no, but, you realize but that we can, we, we can talk about Rebecca you and I can talk about this until we're blue in the face truthfully speaking so maybe that's a, a spinoff so what would you say to if you have one message to impart and you've dropped a lot of messages yeah. but if you could encapsulate that succinctly given where we are right now this time and space what the planet is going through our job as stewards coronavirus, economic discourse, whatever else that's about to happen on the planet. We're all kind of in this together. What sort of message would you be able to impart to our listeners, to anybody, if you have one message to leave and that was it? Okay, so the answer's in nature. So you just have to look towards nature. You know, obviously Mother Earth is one with us. We are one, she's in us, we are in her. So the answer comes in the humble caterpillar. We need to look towards the humble caterpillar. And the caterpillar starts consuming three times its body weight. And as it consumes three times its body weight, it goes into crisis. And as it goes into crisis, 
imaginal cells start appearing in the body of the caterpillar and the imaginal cells imagine the butterfly. And as this crisis continues, the caterpillar creates a chrysalis around itself. As the emotion, imaginal cells start taking over the body of the caterpillar, and the last thing to go is the caterpillar's head, and then the struggle is coming out of the chrysalis in order to become the butterfly. And we're in the same situation um, as the caterpillar in that we are living on this planet, we are consuming three times the natural resources of this planet, which is putting us into crisis, into a, conscious, a crisis of consciousness. And through that crisis of consciousness, imaginal cells are starting to appear. You, me, all those amazing light beings out there that are making a difference. And there's two things that need to happen now. So in the, in the caterpillar, there is a tipping point where you get to a point where there's so many imaginal cells in the body of the caterpillar that the caterpillar can't help but become the butterflies. So these imaginal cells start appearing, appearing, igniting other imaginal cells. And so eventually it becomes a butterfly and it still has to struggle out the chrysalis. Now we have a choice. Each one of us has to make the decision to be an imaginal cell. So what we're seeing is a lot of imaginal cells waking on the planet, but we need to kind of create a tipping point of imaginal cells in order to become the butterfly. If we don't, we die the caterpillar. For me, that's transhumanism. That's the road of transhumanism. If we choose the caterpillar, if we all wake up and realize that our aim is to leave this planet healthy for future generations and really come together to make that happen, then we awaken to the butterfly and we leave a beautiful flourishing planet for our future generations, which we can still have time to do. And the, for me, the coronavirus was the chrysalis because the last thing to go is the caterpillar's head. And so this is what the coronavirus is, the first step of dissolving the head, dissolving the patriarchy or the mindsets that we've had, the separation mindset, in order to give us a chance to become the butterfly. And it had to take the coronavirus to stop the process of consuming because it just put it on its tracks now. And now we have an opportunity, but the struggle to come out of the chrysalis is intense. So we're now in the next level of struggle. But if you realize you're an imaginal cell and you know you're an imaginal cell and that's your job to be an imaginal cell and they are called imaginal cells to imagine a future. Uh, then I say to people, take your little part of the world and become an imaginal cell in that little part of the world. And then you'll inspire so many people in your world and they'll all switch on and they'll all switch. That's what it takes. It's like we're all hologram of the whole. Your voice the voice map, exactly. We're all holograms of the whole. So we're all the butterfly, but it takes every single one of us on this planet to be the hologram of that butterfly, to become that butterfly within ourselves in order to have the hologram of the butterfly. And if not enough humans decide to switch onto that, then we become the caterpillar. We don't ever become the butterfly. And that, I think you can't, that's a choice that each individual has to make. And that takes the pressure off. Forget a messiah, forget Jesus Christ, Forget the man that's gonna come and make everything okay. I am so tired of this rhetoric that some man in the future is gonna come and save everything. Forget, that, forget it, it's each one of us has to be the savior of ourselves. And each one of us is the hologram that's gonna turn on the butterfly. Forget, forget looking externally for the answers. They're all inside of us. And once you realize that, once we know that, then we're all empowerment. And that's why the sovereignty is really important. When we realize that we're sovereign of ourselves, we can become the imaginal self very easily and simply. And once we know that, 
then we, we know we're leaving a planet for our future generations. And as long as we know that, you can't worry what's happening in the rest of the world. Everyone has to make that decision. It's an individual human choice that we're all having to make right now. You can only make the choice for yourself. And once you realize that, the pressure's off, the responsibility is off, because a lot of people are taking responsibility for the state of the planet and they don't, you, nothing, can't solve all the problems too massive, too enormous. Yeah. That actually you can only change your little slice of the world by changing your own world. Focus on what you can control and not anything that you can't control. Just exactly. Do All right. She just exploded that whole Jesus erotica belief in oh me. I'd like to have her. I'd like <laughs> the, to have the, her. The, the, the coming of the Messiah. Seriously. I mean, I don't want another man to come along and save me. I'm done with men saving women or I men would. saving humanity or Amen. any Amen. man saving anything. Why can't I we save would. each other? Do you know what I mean? Like, what's happening? Always a man. It's like they're always the coming of the man. It's like, aren't we done with that rhetoric by now? That story. How well has that done us so far? I want to have a conversation (laughs) around that particular piece next time we have you on. Is the the patriarchal intervention in order to save us, and the metaphor between all of the patriarchal ideology of what is going to save us is always a male figure. And how we got to that point, I have my own theories on it. I've been researching this now for the past couple of years, diving really deeply into it. Yeah. Um, I, I believe. Conversation then. Yeah, yeah I, I believe that the world, humans, have gone through different cycles of humanism, whatever that is, whether we were once animal or not animal or whatever it is. We could talk about that, but at the core of that, in the current state of who we are as humans, we were once run and managed in a more feminine, female-centered society. And somewhere along the line, females, women, that feminine power was was crushed and taken over by men. And I'd really like to have a conversation about that, but we cannot do that today, so. No, it's, that, that's definitely for another day. That's an yeah. enormous, but very important because we are seeing a crumbling of that, um, of the patriarchy. So what's coming up at, behind it? What's the story and the narrative behind it? It can't be feminism. It has to be unity consciousness. Absolutely. The women can't come and save anybody either. We're all humans. It has to be that understanding that we're all individual sovereigns within ourselves. And we're all that in, we're all the hologram of the butterfly. And each one of us has to choose to become the butterfly for that butterfly to exist. Yeah. And it's a clean balance between the men, the masculine and the feminine in order for us to actually realize that true potential, even as our own individual humans, like, you know, anyway, I'm going down a rabbit yeah. hole, but just in of, in of itself, <laughs> There needs to be a balance between the two. Okay, closing um, thoughts. Just one more quick question because we started out with with discussing our need as a human or the human race for success. So shortly, what would you define? <laughs> I know, I know. We're going to be talking about this all day. What would you define success as? You know, it's so weird you asked me this question because I've been thinking about this the whole week, like since last week, what is success? And I really believe it's not compromising your values or principles of who you are and I think in a world where success is defined by how much money you have in the bank account how big your house is how many children you have if you're married if you've got a loving relationship and so many things externally that a lot of people have compromised who they really are and their values and their principles in order to reach what's that level of success so for me a level of success is knowing who you are and living that and at the same time, having the 
comfortableness, the material comfortableness, with it, but without that compromise. Because I think it is a, it, we're all striving for some kind of com feeling comfortable in the world. But, and, and our problem is also that money buys power. So there's, there's also this urge to kind of, to be more powerful, you have to have more money because it's the kind of the system was going. But if you're compromising your values and your principles and your intuition, then at some point um, there's gonna be a disconnect because you make yourself sick and ill because you're not in alignment with yourself. So for me, real success mm. is knowing who you are and living it, being it okay. without compromise. Okay, Rebecca. This has been brilliant. I want to do this again. She's Rebecca Shaman, rebeccashaman.com. I'm Devo. Lisa. Thank you for your time. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, guys. I really look that forward is. to coming back and chatting up a bit more and seeing what we can cook up. <laughs> and I'm going to have another conversation with you tomorrow. So I'm excited about that. Yeah, reading. Yeah. <laughs> you look tentative about it no no i'm excited empowerment reading is gonna be great you're excited. Gonna love it. yeah i am, yeah. I, am. I, I have nervous anxiety excitement good. for it yeah you're feeling a little naked yeah <laughs> good good good, good. vulnerable it's always a good sign thank you know you that we're gonna get through something thank you so much for inviting me really really fantastic to be able to share some of this with and with your uh, with your community and look forward to seeing what we can uh, talk about next time we're going to extract more from you there's there's more to this conversation i told you last week when i spoke to you for whatever reason there's more to what we're going to be doing together i don't know what that looks like yet i'm just going to get with the process no expectations no parameters just flow with it yeah sounds brilliant sounds, sounds like living shamanically that's right <laughs> Thank you, Rebecca. <laughs> Wonderful, guys. Have a great rest of the day. You as well. Take care. That's a love. Bye for now. Bye.